Welcome to Frankly Speaking with Lynn Franks and Friends. And I am so, so delighted to have my very good friend of so many years, so long, since she was a mere babe in arms, Daniela Milton, who is literally staying up to the middle of the night for me because she's in L.A., and I'm in Somerset, and this was the only time we could find, which unfortunately for her, I'm afraid, it's 1.30 in the morning, where we would actually have a quiet space where we could catch up and talk. So a little bit of background about Daniela, because she featured in my first seed handbook, well, you can't see here, because I talked about her then, and that was 23 years ago, as an example of somebody who literally changed her life with such courage. And Daniela now runs, and she founded, one of Hollywood's top agencies, where she represents the world's top hair, makeup artists, stylists, and all sorts of people, the back end of the movie industry, but who are very much the front end in terms of making a success. And I see pictures on social media of her at the Oscars and goodness knows where, and all this glamorous life she's leading. And then I think, my goodness, how far she's come and how well she's done. It's wonderful. So welcome, welcome, Dan. So let, let's go back a little bit. So we first met, uh, how many, you're so much better at dates than me. How many oh years God, ago? I actually wrote this down because I'm not that great at it. I think I was 15 going on 16. Yeah, yeah. So that was, how many years ago was that? 40 years ago? Yeah, it was know. a long time. <laughs> I had recently started my PR business. I mean, you were 15 going on 16. I was probably about 26 or something, not much older, though it seemed like I was. And I was running Lynn Frank's PR, which was starting to become the top PR agency, top fashion PR agency in the UK, which ended up being a sort of I can't even explain it in a way, and neither can you explain it, so a college or a breeding ground for the most interesting young people that would come my way, that I would give jobs to, that would work with me for a number of years and would then go on to just the most extraordinary things. We've just been talking about some of our colleagues who have gone on to direct films, they've become icons in, like Neil Whitaker has become an icon in Australia as an interior design expert. Ursula McFarlane's just brought out the Nicola Ann Smith movie. Is that what she called Nicola Ann? Anna, Anna Nicola Smith, yeah. Brilliant movie. And Julian Henry, who's been working with Simon Fuller for years, working with the Beckhams and all sorts of other people in terms of their image. I mean, just the most amazing college, Deborah Bourne, we mustn't forget her, who <laughs> dead forget her, who got an MBE for working with models of all sizes instead of just beautiful, young, skinny girls, and did a huge shift in how we perceive beauty. So many wonderful people that we've worked with over the time. And you, for me, have always been the star. And you're so modest. And you're That's so like, <laughs> too humble. I keep, I keep saying to you, come on, look what you've done. So let's talk about your story. So let's talk about when we when we met. So you were 15 going on 16, and you came to me for a job as a shop assistant. No, actually, in my mind, I came to be the manageress of Howie Diffusion. Oh, yeah, you did. Well, that was the same thing. Well, kind of, although I was 15 going on 16 with no real retail experience. So, And we had a little concession at the time for my ex-husband, Paul Howie, in Topshop. Yeah, Shop. Howie Diffusion. And I was working as a Saturday girl in Topshop Marble Arch, and it was a very small, <laughs> very strange Topshop. It was underground opposite Selfridges. And every Saturday, I'd run up to Howie Diffusion to just look at the clothes because I just was obsessed with fashion, but no way of really getting there. 
And you, at that point, were brought up by your mother and your grandmother in South London. Your yeah, grand- yeah, my grandmother and my granddad. My mum was sort of off doing her thing, whatever she was doing. And you were living in in South London? Yeah, I was living in West Norwood near Crystal Palace. And you'd left school at 16, 15? I left because it just was so boring to me. And I knew there was no way of me getting to where I needed to be without me doing it myself, if that makes sense. I did the same thing, left school at 16. Did you see yourself getting somewhere? That's the interesting thing. I did. I thought I could actually do anything. I really felt like I could do anything until I realised when I started working too, I was weighing over my head. But what happened was I'd gone up to the top shop to look at the clothes. There was a job there for manageress. And I was like, I can do that. Of course I can. What gave you that confidence? What gave you that confidence so young? I wanted to so badly be in the fashion industry. And I knew my family knew nothing about colleges or St. Martin's or any of those, you know, roads everybody took. There was no way I was going to, nobody even uttered the word college or university. Because it was my grandparents, they were even a generation, obviously, you know, older than my mum. And they were so working class. It was really like, leave school, go out and give me your pay packet at the end of the week sort of mentality. So I saw this ad and I was like, I can do that. So I asked to see the manageress. She must have been as dopey as me because she actually got me an interview with you. <laughs> so go to the Mrs. Howie shop. In Covent Garden, we had that shop in Covent Garden. 138 Longacre. That was the beginning of everything for me, everything. I mean, there was nothing... Like it as Deborah Bourne, I'll quote Deborah Bourne because she always goes, the office closed years and years ago, but you still work there. I still work <laughs> there. She was, she's right. So I got this interview and I'd never been in the shop because it was too scary and amazing. But anyway, I got there and Charles, lovely Charles was the, you know, the manager. And I think I was a few minutes late and he was like, you're late to see, you know, mother, I think he called you. <laughs> he always called me mother. Big bear of a man, sadly passed away. And it was just walking into that architecture, you know, Ben Kelly's. It was just so amazing. Like everything changed and I was, I just felt home. And I walked through that big metal door, you know, and you were sat there like we are now. You had, I think it was that way round. Was it a black bob and it was reversible hair by Daniel Galvin? Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it was re- It was called reversible hair by Daniel Galvin and you had this amazing sharp bob. And I think it was black and when you put it up, it was bright orange. And now I've got purple and silver, have I? <laughs> you would, yeah, it's interesting we're sitting like this <laughs> because I feel like I'm back in that space. But you were just amazing. You were everything. Like, it was unbelievable. So I said to you, you were not right for the job as manager of the Howie Diffusion shop, but I thought you'd be great in PR. But you said, how do you feel about PR? And I thought you meant punk rocker. And I was like, (laughs) that's brilliant. That's perfect. It's not a stretch. I can do it. I had your colour hair, but it was crimped out here and... And I remember opening my bag as I left and you went, what are you doing? I'm like, do you want to check my bag? You you went, we don't do that here. And I just remember because at Topshop, I always had to open my bag <laughs> <laughs> before I left. So, yeah, and that was it. I mean, honestly, I would do it again. And you were just so enthusiastic and so lovely. And, of course, you had 
in a way felt you died and gone to heaven because you were such a music fan. And in those days, we had your biggest hero, David Bowie, coming in the shop. And I, I remember for you, that was like desperate to get out there and talk to him. We had all the pop stars coming in of the day. And so for a young 17-year-old girl who absolutely adored fashion and music, you were in your... Oh, <laughs> I have never been so happy. I actually think it's the happiest I've been oh, in my oh. life. And you, and you were such a delight to have and so enthusiastic and such a hard worker. And because we were learning about PR, we were kind of making up what PR and fashion meant as an industry as we went along. And you were such an important part of that. And... I don't remember how many years you worked as part of the core. I was there for 10 years. Were you? And then you went, was it after that that you went to work with Marie Claire magazine? Yeah, I went to Marie Claire as the fashion and bookings editor. And, you know, it was such a different world. It really wasn't a world that suited me very well, to be honest. But you learned about the hair and makeup industry. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I learned, but I've become very, very friendly so it was in their launch year. So that was also like settling in, you know, and it was their launch year and I got very, very, very friendly and close with Catherine Bailey. Yes, who was, of course, the model that was married to the photographer, is married to the photographer, David Bailey, yes. Yeah, so she was like, come on, let's leave here and, and go and work. For, you can come work for David. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know about him, you know. It's... <laughs> didn't go for easy bosses, did you? First of all, me. Then you go. Then you go for. Then I wouldn't me. have been able to do what I'm doing now if I had had it easy. Do you know what I mean? But the best training. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Like it's like University of Life, really. It was, yeah. So I worked with Bailey, and I was with him, and that was really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Another world again. And I mean, he was was at that point that like, top fashion photographer in the world. He was photographing all the top models and actresses. And his social life was sort of out there with all the famous stars of the time. This was was this 80s, late 80s or early late this 80s, was I guess. 89, I think. 89. Yeah. And how long were you with Bailey? I wasn't with him very long, a couple of years, maybe not even, maybe like a year and a half. And then I decided to just sort of go freelance. I was doing really strange things like seating plans for fashion shows. You know, I was on the dole. It was the first time I ever, ever, ever did that in my life. Went on the dole and did freelance. Yeah, but then I was doing these fashion, you know, and getting paid cash for these sort of seating plans. I did that and then you got me an interview with Gerard Marie. A very unsavoury man running model agencies in those well, days. but it was very, very nice of you at the time to recommend me. He wanted me to do a show, which I did. They had no budget. It was probably the biggest challenge I've ever done in terms of an event because it was like a four-course sit-down meal. It was an auction. I managed to get Jonathan Ross to host with Karen Franklin, lovely Karen, Naomi Campbell walked for me. Tyrion Moogler showed, I think, for the first time. So it was really... Huge, huge success. Huge and great and wonderful. And then after that, you asked me to produce a segment of the British Fashion Awards, which was getting the presenters, getting all the presenters. And we got some amazing people, Grace Jones and... Gary Glitter, we really mixed with some unsavory. We did. We didn't know they were unsavory. I mean, I don't know about you, but 
I did not know about the Me Too thing going on. And with us in the fashion industry, it was mostly women and gay men. So we didn't really come across all that, that very unpleasant stuff that clearly was going on in the background. Perhaps we were just a bit naive. We were so focused on our work, weren't we, that we just didn't even go there. There was no reason to even think that there was anything wrong with Gary Glitter in those days. No, no very friendly chap, as we thought at the he time. He had the and... son as well. I remember meeting his son who seemed, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, there, there were people with a lot of hidden secrets that we were just very naive and we didn't know. And we just we just loved what we did and we just got on with it. And then after you did the British Fashion Awards, you then came back to me. But the thing that I always, for me, is what you represent, and that's what I want to talk about, is the courage that you constantly show, just sort of throwing yourself into these really remarkable situations, working for people with quite strong reputations, but getting on with them brilliantly and doing an amazing job. And so I will carry on talking about that because then it carried on then with you going to the States. And of course, as it so happens, which I didn't know at the time, your father, who you hadn't seen since you were very young, lived in America. You have a sister who's a very successful movie producer in America. Two sisters and a brother. You had this whole family. So you came from this working class sort of South London background where your mum wasn't around very much and, you know, you had to really sort of struggle to really become who you are and without a lot of encouragement. And then you go to the States where you've got a full family, loving Jewish-Israeli family waiting for you. Very strange. I didn't actually get to know them when I first came here. So tell us about first coming then, how, how you first got there, because it was through Angelica Houston, wasn't it? Well, no, it was when I was working for Bailey, I used to field all his calls because I was his office assistant. You know, he had a camera assistant. I was the office assistant and I'd field all his calls. So I got quite friendly with Jack Nicholson, the actor's assistant, Annie Marshall, lovely lady, Annie Marshall. So I used to talk to Annie a lot, never really to Jack, just putting him through to Bailey. That was it. So when I got to America, the only number I had, there was no fashion here in Los Angeles at all to speak so what, of. what made you go to Los Angeles then? What was and my the... dad had said to me, you know, I'd like you to come work for me and come out to LA. I'll get you a green card. So I gave notice to you guys. And then he, about a week before I left, he said, no, it can't happen. And you can't stay with me. And oh you my can't. God. And I was, I didn't know yeah, that. it was really. I think you probably did. Oh, I did at the time, probably. Back then, yeah. A long time ago, yeah. So I thought I didn't know what to do. And, you know, I was with then with Russell, who, you know, was my then fiancé. And then we had like a £1,000 between us. And we arrived in L.A. And he dropped me at the Hilton Hotel in Sherman Oaks. And I have never felt so alienated and had it not been that I told Debbie Mason, Hillary Alexander, Ian Webb and all these people that I was going to work in America in Los Angeles, I would have come back. I honestly knew the fashion industry was so unforgiving with that. Not those particular people, they weren't unforgiving, but it was just like, it was such a big fail. So I knew I couldn't come back. And I just remember looking out the window of that Hilton with that horrible freeway going back and forth and I was so homesick and was Russell with you yeah he was with me thank god it would have been horrible to be on my own that's for sure and we had about two thousand dollars then yeah <laughs> and we didn't know what we were going to do and we finally found these 
friends of friends of my dad who housed us. And then Russell kept saying to me, when are you going to call the Jack Nicholson contact? And it was so funny. I've never felt like a grain of sand on a beach. I was nothing here. Like, you know, working for you and knowing all those people and being able to make things happen and receiving flowers and gifts and, you know, getting clothes and doing all those things. And suddenly it was an ego thing. My ego took a massive bashing because I was like, what if, I, I think it was really in front of Russell, like I had always been this person who made things happen and suddenly I was really afraid. And how how old were you at this point? I was 30. And so I finally did call Annie Marshall and she remembered me, which was great. And she said, you know what, Jack's got a job here. You know, I don't know, you know, come up, it's a second assistant, assistant to me, but come up, made an appointment, went up there, got a ride up there, didn't have a car off Mulholland Drive and it was a funny place because it was like you drove in and Marlon Brando's house was, it was one gate but Marlon's house was on one side and Jack's was on another so went to Jack's and sat in this room with literally a gigantic Picasso hanging there <laughs> and Annie came in and I gave her my CV and she was like oh you've done too much you shouldn't then I was like no 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 listen I, I'm I'm not American I'd be really happy to do anything I, I really would I'd do anything I don't care and she's like well let me think about it I got home by the time I got home on the then machine it was Annie saying listen Angelica Houston's looking for an assistant She's on a Woody Allen movie, but why don't you wait? And, you know, she'll be back in a week. Could you wait? And I'm like, yes. And in the meantime, Tony Kay trying to get me to come work for him. But that felt so wrong. Very talented English film director. So talented. It just wasn't right when I was speaking to him. I just didn't feel it was right. So have you listened to your intuition a lot during your career? I think so, yeah. And I think it all stems from failing because... You know, I mean, walking into your office as that 15 and a half year old, and you know how many times I messed up getting the wrong things. I remember one time you asked me to get the standard from the glass booth at the end of Long Acre. The evening standard. <laughs> the evening favorite. standard, sorry, yes. And so you'd given me the money, I put the coin in, and the whole glass thing opened. I was like, brilliant, I can give Lynn all of this. <laughs> And I came back, I went, Lynn, look, I got all of them. And you're like, go and put them back. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so it was the little things, just I was so naive, and but I was scrappy and I still am. You've always have fought for what you feel is right. And you've always stayed in integrity. You've always been authentic. All those key values, which so many people believe in and you've done it I mean you've just done it so you would stick by it and you might call it scrappy I would say you know you're sticking up for what you believe in and that self-confidence really comes from loving what you do because as I said earlier you know I often find you too humble for the incredible success that you've achieved and at the same time this great confidence you have, particularly when you go into battle for other people, which is why you make an amazing agent. Because you're, anyway, we'll come to that. We, I'm, I'm skipping over. So by that time, so you waited the week for Angelica Houston. Waited a week for Angelica, went to her house, and it was just instant. It was like you, really. It was like, love it. You know, I loved her. She was just like, fabulous and very nice and we'd started talking and we had so many people in common that we knew you know and she's like can you start Monday and I was like I didn't ask her what I was earning I didn't ask I was just like yep 
I can, I can. And I did, and I was with her for six years, and actually she was in with me in the birth of my first son. And, you know, it was great, but I realised very quickly, as you know, Lynn, when you have kids, I would have liked to have been a producer. That's what I would really have loved. You should have been a producer. I would have loved to have done that. You still can be a producer. Yeah, maybe. But I realised that I can, and my sister, I see, you know, all the stuff she does and she's away all the time. And I knew once I had kids, I didn't want to be away from them. So I I had to create something that I could control my own kind of hours and... Be self-employed, start your own business. As much as you loved Angelica. And I, of course, remember seeing you when you were her PA and... I met her, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, through you. And then coming and seeing the work that you did and it inspired me to write a TV series, as you might remember, based on the Hollywood PAs, which was brilliant. That's still a great idea. Still a great idea. Right? It's still a really good idea. That's, we should produce that together. That's what yeah, we should Yeah, we do. probably should. Because I used to laugh about the fact that the true power in Hollywood was always the PAs. They were the ones that would decide who their employers would meet with, what press interviews they'd do, what mo- even what movies they'd do. And I could see very clearly that there was this kind of network of PAs in Hollywood, which you were very much part of, which ran things and <laughs> knew everybody. Yeah, and you really kind of did. Like in terms of, you know, it was interesting if there'd be casting decisions, you know, I'd say to Angelica, there's this actor, you, have. you know, I got quite a few people in of her just in terms of you know they hadn't heard of them here well you've always been so generous about recommending talent and I think that you know what goes around comes around and that's why people one of the reasons why people love working with you apart from the fact that you are incredibly efficient and brilliant negotiator I mean you want what is fair that's the thing about you Dan you want what's fair and that's what drives you so when you're talking to producers about the right and fair fee for the people you represent you'll go to the end of the world for it because you know what's fair I absolutely will. And the good news about that is that when you're fair and then you go back to a producer, could be a really hardcore producer, and you pitch your reason why something has gone wrong and needs to be rectified, they generally will do it. They'll listen to you because you come from the heart, you have the reputation. So we're speeding on a bit, but so you had your two children or you had one child at that point. Had one child and then I started to go, oh God, I'm not going to be the best assistant I can be anymore because... You have other responsibilities. Yeah, like Angelica was kind of first, you know, at that point. But anyway, I sort of ploughed on with the one baby, then fell pregnant again and thought, oh, this is just, how is this going to work, you know? And Angelica really wanted me to still travel with her, but I was like, I'm not leaving, I'm not, not doing it. So it wasn't fair to her really, to be honest. But I remember I was in New Mexico. I can't remember what project we were on. And I was with a woman called Narva Sedan, and she was Angelica's costumer. And a costumer in the movie industry is very different from a costume designer. A personal costumer are responsible for the continuity in every piece of clothing and jewellery. And, you know, you might be shooting one scene, and then in the next hour you're shooting that scene, but it's like two weeks later. So she has to remember everything she's put you know, it's a job I wouldn't want, put it that way. But she was saying to me, I'll never forget it. I said, it's really weird, isn't it, that there's no hair and makeup agents for film and television. How is that possible? Because the world I was from with you 
I mean, you started hair yeah. and makeup agency. Yeah, representing and photographers, people like David LaChapelle and exactly. Sam McKnight. Yeah. yeah. There was yeah. no one doing and it then. No, and Linda Cantello. I mean, and I remember saying, this is really odd. It's really strange. And she said, yeah, well, you should think about it. And I said, yeah, maybe I should. I said, but if there's no agency for it, nobody's going to want to part with commission because they're not used to it. Every producer would call, you know, if they'd go through, you know, 30, 40 phone calls calling people at home saying, you know, are you available? Can I see your resume, CV, whatever? Anyway, and then she said to me, oh, talking of which, I've got to do a deal. And I hate this producer. He always, always chisels me down. And I'm like, I'll do it. <laughs> I'm good at getting things for other people. I said, what is it? What do you want? Tell me what you want. I had no idea what I was doing. But I was like, all right, let me. And just interestingly enough, I spoke to this guy and he was great with me and he gave me everything. I didn't even have to fight for it. It was like she had a preconceived idea because she had struggled with it so much that it was going to be a fight immediately. And when you go in with that mentality to anything, it, it, it is a fight. And it wasn't for me. I was like, she wants it. And it was wonderful. And I remember typing out her deal and I remember binding it like lemon, like I put like a cover on it. I wrote her, you know. All those things that you learned from PR days. <laughs> everything that I am doing now, I learned from all of you, you know, everything I'd done to that point of my business I remember those laminated covers we always did I know yeah so she then Narva started telling everybody that I was going to be an agent and I was like the people called me I'm like no 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 I'm I'm not and I what no and then when I was pregnant with my second kid I was like oh I should probably look at this agency thing <laughs> because by that time I had got to know a lot of hair and makeup people through Angelica and they were really big people in that industry. And while I assisted her, I assisted them too. I always made sure they were looked after whatever they needed, you know, all of that stuff. And so they started calling me going, hey, Nava is saying you're going to be an agent. And I'm like, no, I'm not. It's like, I don't know what you're doing. And then when about five of them were really interested, I thought, oh, my, there might be something in this. So... Yeah, Angelica went to Ireland and I started putting all my ducks in a row and just kind of got my agency license, got it all set up. So when she come back, you know, I told her, you know, and it was it was hard, you know. Because oh, you were like best friends, weren't you, really? Yeah, I always say Morticia Adams was my first best friend in America. <laughs> so it was it was tough on her because, you know. Well, she relied on you so much. That was why. And you know things you, you know, you know so much. Yeah. Course. It's hard to find that trust with people. And she said to me, listen, how about you have your agency and do it from this office? And I didn't want to be rude to her and say no. So I said, yes, okay. I knew it wouldn't work. It's never going to work because I can't really dedicate myself to that. And of course, you know, I said to her, all right, well, I'll do it, but I have to go on half salary. Now, bearing in mind, I'm pregnant. I've got no other form of income. Oh, God. So... I put a phone down the end of the office, 
Milton Agency. I remember all that because I was visiting you. I think I want to live there in, in the States about then. I was in LA, wasn't I? Yeah. Yeah, that was lovely when you were here. Made me feel really safe, actually. Anyway, then... Uh, you know, Angelica would come over for our meeting in the mornings, which we always did, and that phone always bloody rang when she was there, and I just could feel how irritating it was to her, you know, and I got it. I understood it. I mean, who wouldn't be irritated by that? You're trying to do your business, and you know that that's happening, and, you know, it was a thorn in her side. So I just said, listen, I should leave. And, you know, and I, I did and I was pregnant and I got an office on Hollywood Boulevard, did, you know, stepped over the junkies to get in there and sort of sat on an orange box going, what am I going to do? <laughs> and I basically, you know, everything's unionized here. So I stumbled into the union pregnant. I spoke to a man called John Inzarella who I think just took pity on me, to be honest. He's like, poor cow. I was like, you know, I want to start an agency. I don't want to tread on your toes. I want to work with you. How do I do that? And he just oh, that was really very clever of his you. wing. And he helped me, really helped me. And along with the five artists I took on, they knew I didn't know anything. So they were teaching me as I went along. You know, and then I started an office in London, which started to kind of grow and get a bit out of control. And Leslie, actually. Leslie Harrison, who's another Lynn Franks PR graduate. <laughs> yeah. She ran it for a while until I think she was just like, this is horrible. And then luckily, from whatever God sent me, Mandy Martin. <laughs> yeah, who was a friend of ours from those so days. She was definitely like Lynn Frank. She didn't work at the agency, but she worked with clients of ours and she was a close friend. Yeah, and was amazing. And so Mandy, you know, and I are partners in the London office and it just really feels so good to have a woman you can trust, somebody you know so well, and she has just run with it. And so that's going really Wonderful. Yeah. So between you in LA and Mandy in London, you really do cover the planet. I mean, we do. Yeah. I mean, Mandy does, you know, Europe and she's got some in South Africa. So do I. And then some in Australia, New Zealand, Canada. Amazing. And how many people do you represent now at Milton I don't Agency? Know. Don't you don't know. Me. I don't <laughs> want to. Freak me out. Is, it, is it hundreds and hundreds? No, I think it's probably about, I think it's probably about, Maybe maybe a hundred in each. And the top. I mean, I know that they are all winners of all the awards, the Academy Awards, the BAFTA Awards. And you get them, I remember even back in the early days, you would get them these other amazing deals. Because they were doing the makeup for a big film, you would then get them a deal with Max Factor or one of the other cosmos. You know, it wasn't you used to always think out of the box. You always do think out of the yeah. box. Well, that all comes from, you know. Well, the experience you've had. I remember the first press release I ever had, I didn't even know how to type, and you were just like, there it is. <laughs> There's a typewriter. Didn't have computers. Just yes, do it. Yeah, it was typewriter. Yeah, it was like clunk, 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 clunk. And you got your green card, and you did get close with your American family, which is lovely. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, that's so wonderful. That Having come from as a single child, you know, that suddenly you have this lovely family in the States, which is where you're supposed to be, although you still sound like you're very much a Londoner. You really are. Oh, yeah. You Every time you come back, when you have the time, you go wandering down Long Acre. <laughs> you still love all the memories of them. what were wonderful days. So I want to ask you a few specific questions. 
which we've covered a little bit, but I want to go a little bit further. So firstly, where do you think you get that confidence from? Even though you don't have that personal confidence as much, where do you get that? I don't think it's confidence. I think it's just, for me now, what it is, is knowing what I'm talking about. <laughs> like knowing what I'm doing. I know what I'm talking about. I know what I need. I know how to get it in a in a positive way. I've never been that agent that screams and shouts. It's ne- it just doesn't no, work. Your way. So you've learned your craft and you believe in what you do. Yeah, I believe I don't know. I think it's confidence in having the knowledge, you know, you know what you're talking about. There's nothing worse than being unprepared, not knowing, going into something and trying to bluff it. People can smell that a mile away. But I also think it's growing up the way I grew up and you just kind of make things happen. It wasn't really, you used the word courage earlier. For me, it was more, I just had to do it. It just had to happen. I knew I had to get into fashion somehow. It was never going to happen with my family, ever. And so I knew I had to do it. By the grace of whatever God was listening, the manager at Howie Diffusion sent me to you. Yeah. You know, I could have gone in another direction. And, I, you know, I could, as I always said to you, I might be stacking shelves in Tesco's. Not that there's anything wrong with stacking shelves in Tesco's, but. It's not where you meant to be. I think. Do you think it's as easy now? I don't know if you have, You obviously you've got two sons yourself and sort of starting their lives. How old are they now in their 20s? Harrison's 26 and Chester is 23. Right. And Harrison works with you and Chester's a filmmaker. So do you think it's that easy for young people now as it was for us? And it wasn't easy for us. We worked very, very hard. But do you think it's a different world now? I think it's so different. I mean... Social media, as wonderful as it is, I think, as there's so much to talk about on this topic, it's harder because I think whenever we or you created things back then when I was 15, they were all new. They were all new. They were new. Now it's really hard to think of a new concept. It's very difficult. Oh, we can still come up with them, I think. Well, you probably could. But I think about the kids, you know, I have boys but they wear my clothes I mean they'll go and put a sweater on they can I use your can I wear that coat can I or don't even ask you know <laughs> um, but everything seems recycled in terms of even fashion for them they love like the 70s you know we did it music I mean nothing seems to be as I mean, I'm sure there's world music and all of this great stuff, but I'm talking about popular, nothing seems to really... There's no new boundaries to break. And I, and I guess also with you, you created a business that didn't exist. I suppose there's a lot of agencies that have copied you now and are out there. Yeah, that- I'm really proud of that. And there were agencies that were doing below what we call below the line. Yeah, production. Yeah, they were, they were, you know, camera and... Obviously, directors and or so technical and yeah, filmmakers. But there was no, and they might have the odd one makeup artist if they knew a friend or was helping a friend. But nobody opened an agency for just solely hair and makeup for TV and film. And who knew if it would work? Because you're asking people to part with ten percent of their income, and they've never had to do it before. And there was a resistance with producers. It took me five years, by the way. This was not an overnight thing. It was five years to be a pinprick on the map of the film industry before producers started to realise, oh, she doesn't want to take money from us. And if I call her, 
it's like you know she'll make up do all the hard work and all the arrangements and yeah and you you know it's like they don't have to call in you know back before we existed and all these other wonderful agencies exist people they just call everyone at home and so when I started there was like you know five people then it grew to 10 and then it was you know it got bigger and bigger it was just as a one-stop shop for them so having really created an industry well you didn't create the industry but you definitely created a completely new concept of the industry I know because I meet people that their their biggest ambition as a hair or, or a makeup artist or somebody in the area that you represent is to be represented by the Milton agency it has become I know it for a fact and I, I even meet people here in Somerset who do special <laughs> makeup for films who would do anything to be represented oh, by the Milton agency so it would become a benchmark for everything that is good about the movie industry and the area that you represent, you created it. I mean, in a gay, I guess, I don't want to pat my own back, but I suppose in the same way that I, at the time, created PR in the way you've created agency work for the people you represent in an amazing way. And you're still working from home. You're still the same lovely person. You live and work in an industry which is not known for its integrity, really, and relationships. And you have kept your relationships going right the way back to when you were 15. You are still as kind and as compassionate as you always have been, while at the same time making these amazing things happen. And it's so lovely. I'm so proud of you because you could have ended up being such, uh, you know, a, a Hollywood, you never would have done, but I mean, another person might have ended up being a real Hollywood LA monster. And you are still that little girl with the big eyes looking at David Bowie coming in the shop. Everybody yeah. loves you. And I think for me, I'm actually feel like crying when I talk about this. Love is the most important thing, whether it's in business, whether it's with your friends, whether it's with your family. Love is the most important thing. And you, Daniela, represent really love in everything you do. And I'm so proud, 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 proud of you in every way. Well, thank you for the opportunity to, to took a shot on a little, you know, person from the gutter as I said to you <laughs> never from the gutter but a scrappy little creative kid oh, I was very scrappy that's and you, for sure. and you're wearing all these punky clothes and you came in it was the best you are a star you are a star and you are absolute proof that it doesn't matter really what your background is doesn't matter what your even your age is if you believe in what you do and you have the confidence and you do it with your values intact yeah Absolutely. You can own the world in whatever way works for you. And I would like to say that I don't see this as the final stage for you. I think there is so much more for you. Now the boys are up and running, um, which was always your responsibility. Now is the time for you to say, well, what do you want to do? What's for Daniela? So if I said to you now, if you could choose anything, you had a magic one, what would you like to do for your life? Go back and work for you. Yeah, <laughs> come back to Somerset. Well, let's start a fashion PR company. <laughs> I, I got interviewed this week by somebody and it was about your kind of biggest mistakes you made. And I said, well, probably the biggest financial mistake I made was to sell my PR agency. But maybe I wouldn't be alive right now in the same way. But my goodness, it was an amazing place, wasn't oh, it? There was no, honestly, I would never trade college, university for that education I had there because you know, I did fall over. I did scrape my knees. I did get slapped on the wrist. I didn't do everything right. But that is how I learned. I never learned from what I did right, ever. I only no, you ever didn't do, from you, you didn't do anything wrong. I mean, I was just always in a rush. I was insane, actually, when I think about it. But the wonderful stories of the insanity 
And I think I had to sort of sell the business to find my sanity and find out who I was. So maybe it's time we start doing something again. But I think you really are at a point still. You're a lot younger than me still. Well, you're, you're definitely not younger really than me. not that much younger than you. <laughs> you're definitely <laughs> younger. And it's time to do something, bringing together, as you always have done, your knowledge, your experience, your wisdom, what you've learned, what you care about to the next stage. So I see you as a producer. I really do. And I hope that's where you move to and uh, that doesn't mean the Milton agency won't continue on being strong and powerful and really good at what it does and again why it's successful not just because of you and not because it's Mandy but because what the agency represents the business represents it is and I think that's important to find a business partner who has the same kind of qualities yeah it's just yeah. and the same values same values yeah, we can look at each other and know exactly what we're thinking and it's a beautiful beautiful feeling it is, it is. and i yeah i absolutely agree with you so well well thank you so much and i know now it's i don't even want to think what time in the morning it is in la a.m it must be about nearly three o'clock so i'm gonna let you go and thank you love so you much for everything so much. you're the best i love you well, i love you too and you're the best too and i and i hope that you know, whatever age or whatever background, any of the young women or women of any age that listen to this podcast and indeed listen to the lessons I hope that they will get from your experiences through Seeds Enterprise Program and, and what an important person you are in inspiring others, will see that they too can do it. That's the most important Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And do it with values and do it with love and your heart relationships. Never go wrong. Your heart. It's always got to be heart-led business. Maybe that's exactly where we should end up. It's about heart-led business. So love you hugely. Please come to Somerset as soon as you can. I will. And, and <laughs> let you go to bed and we'll catch up again very soon. All right, darling. Huge love. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In my conversation with Daniela, we've talked about the importance of having a heartfelt business where relationships with the people you work with, the people you represent, are all about connection, true heart connection. I think for women, it's particularly important. So as our seed exercise to go with this particular podcast, I'd like to talk about running a heartfelt business or just running your life in a heartfelt way. And perhaps there's one or two things you might do today, but in the normal course of life, you may not think of consciously that will just be expressing some form of heartfelt action. Doesn't mean to say you're starting a charity or even giving to a charity, but some small thing you could do through your business, through your work, through your life today that represents a heartfelt thought you have that you'd like where you'd like to contribute to others. That's my seed exercise. I'm sure you do it every day. I'm sure if you listen to this podcast, that's exactly who you are. But maybe just being consciously aware of a simple act of kindness. If you like what you've heard in my Frankly Speaking podcast and want to learn more practical methods to help you plant the seeds to your own empowerment journey, then please subscribe to this podcast, rate it and review it. Also, do make sure to join our seed community if you haven't already. And together with thousands of like-minded women, you will make friends, become inspired and share your stories. Visit seednetwork.com and find out more. Until then, see you next time.